Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. And I heard an eyewitness report from Israel that I want to share with you because I was really moved by this. And it was from our, our good friend, many of you know, Eitan G. And he was talking about the incredible unity and the togetherness, and it's just this historic thing going on. And I asked him to describe it. I said, what, you know, like, give me an example. And I was expecting something really amazing, like something that I've never heard before. And he was very sincere and very excited when he said this. He said, he said, let me tell you, let me tell you just an example of the Actus. And I'm really, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating something like basically supernatural right now. Because he was right there when the war started. And he said, when I was driving, someone let me in ahead of them. And that was it. That, that was it. And I was really inspired. Let me tell you, I, I wasn't disappointed. Even though on one level, it was incredibly anticlimactic. Because I was expecting something really, something like, wow, like, really? You, and you saw, you witnessed that with your own eyes? Like, that's what I was expecting. And it was so the opposite of what I was expecting. But I was actually even empowered by it. And let me, let me tell you why. Because I realized that all of us can be doing that all of the time. That, in other words, you think of this like the, the grand dream of Jewish unity, right? That we know that when that happens, the domino effects are so incredible that they literally ripple through and, and transform reality. Like, how do you do it? How can we ever get to that dream state? And then to hear that the answer is something as doable and mundane and as small as letting someone in line ahead of you. Like that's, that is actually how it happens. Just being aware of the people around you in the moment and just making sure that people's needs are taken care of, like in the smallest way. So sometimes that gets a little bit overwhelming. My, I don't know about you, but my, my email is being absolutely flooded with, with requests from from, from organizations I've never heard of and people I've never heard of and, and everything like that. So, so sometimes we, we can absolutely be overwhelmed. But the reality is, just look around you. Look at the people around you. Does this person need to get in line? Did, did that person just sort of like, whatever. Remember, one of the greatest teachings I've ever heard in my entire life, like top five for sure, is... How was the entire world saved from starvation? Literally, the entire world was about to starve during the famine in Pharaoh's time and, and Yosef's time, Yosef at Sadiq's time. How was that worldwide famine averted? And the answer is, when Joseph was one of the sort of assistant wardens, you know, he was a prisoner himself, but when he was one of the assistant wardens in, in Egypt, in this prison, he saw two people who looked unhappy. Now, keep in mind, everyone looks unhappy in an ancient Egyptian prison. 
You know, there isn't anyone like whistling and like, you know, tap dancing, right? On the like, so, so, by the way, that, that reminds me of a story, but let me just finish this first. Which is that, but he noticed in terms of his extreme righteousness and his extreme sensitivity that they're a little sadder than normal. Right? That in itself is amazing. Like, you could just write off someone, ah, that person's always depressed. But they noticed, he noticed that they were a little sadder than normal. And he went up and he asked them, what's going on? You know, and they said, well, we had these upsetting dreams. And because he heard their dreams, because he asked, he heard their dreams. And because he heard their dreams, he interpreted them. And because he successfully interpreted them, his reputation spread to Paro. And because of that, Paro asked him, interpret my dream. No one can interpret my dream. And because Yosef then interprets Paro's dream, the entire world gets saved from starvation. And that entire chain reaction begins with one person noticing that another person looks a little bit down. So if you want to know what it means just to let another person in line, right, or let their car go first ahead of yours, Literally, the ripple effects can transform the entire world. So now let me tell you that story that I was thinking about just in between there. It was Rebeli Melech Lezhensk and, and Reb Zusha were, were, in, in, were jailed for something. I don't know. And there was a bucket. You know, the, this is before indoor plumbing and the, you know, the facilities, whatever it was, everything was just miserable and crude and whatever. So you have, you have this bucket that's put into the prison for, you know, people's needs. And Rebeli Melech was just mourning the fact that, that they couldn't daven because you're not allowed to daven in front of open waste products. You can't pray, you can't do that. So, so he was sort of depressed and then his brother, Reb Zusha, was like, you know something? Whatever God does, God does from a place of goodness. And if God is stopping our prayers right now, he's doing it from a state of goodness. And so Reb Zusha then sort of just got so wrapped up in the goodness of God that he starts dancing around the bucket. Do you understand? And then the prison guard was like, wait a second. There's something making you Jews in prison happy? I'm not going to allow that. This bucket seems to be making you so happy. So he took the bucket out of the prison and then they were able to daven. that amazing? Literally by being besimcha through happiness, it obliterated the obstacles that were in front of them. Right? But again, let's just like take a moment to fully appreciate the mechanics of that. It's not they said, I will be besimcha, I will be happy, and therefore through this power of simcha, I will obliterate the obstacles. I mean, that, I guess that's not a bad path necessarily. But I think what was so beautiful about this is that he was just genuinely besimcha with his circumstances. And then it kind of happened on its own. God just took over and did it on his own. So, so it's even more L'shem Shemayim, right? In other words, for the sake of heaven, just sort of like accepting the pain and suffering of the moment 
and saying, okay, God, all you do is bring good. And then once genuine happiness came from that place, then you see that, that the obstacles were removed. So anyway, I'm sure both ways can work, but, but that way is even more powerful. That way is even more powerful because there's no agenda. Okay, so, so what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is just look around you. Look around you and that's literally how transformation in the world is going to happen. Now I'm going to read something to you because we can't ignore what's going on in the world today. And I just thought that there was a level of clarity to this that I just, I really appreciated. This is from The Atlantic in the Ideas section by Simon Sebag Montefiore. I'm sorry if I mispronounced his name, but I thought, I thought that he said something really, really clear here. So I'll just read a little bit. Whatever the enormous complexities and challenges of bringing about this future, one truth should be obvious among decent people. Killing 1,400 people and kidnapping more than 200, including scores of civilians, was deeply wrong. The Hamas attacks resembled a medieval Mongol raid for slaughter and human trophies, except it was recorded in real time and published to social media. Yet since October 7th, Western academics, students, artists, and activists have denied, excused, or even celebrated the murders by a terrorist sect that proclaims an anti-Jewish genocidal program. Some of this is happening out in the open, some behind the masks of humanitarianism and justice, and some in code, most famously, quote, from the river to the sea, a chilling phrase that implicitly endorses the killing or deportation of the nine million Israelis. It seems odd that one has to say Killing civilians, old people, even babies is always wrong. But today, say it one must. You know, I, I remember a chilling image that I heard from Reb Shlomo many years ago. You know, Germany was the most advanced, civilized, educated country in the entire world. And the number of PhDs who worked Germans I'm talking about, German PhDs who worked as guards in concentration camps. And Reb Shlomo said this image, I've never been able to get it out of my head, of a German PhD guard taking a child by the hand and leading him into a gas chamber. There is no correlation between IQ and goodness. There is no correlation between artistic genius and morality. We tend to be so enthralled with people's abilities, right? That we attribute goodness to them as sort of like a, kind of like, in psychology it's called the halo effect, where if you have one particular quality, then you add this halo of other qualities to them, right? So this is the halo effect, where if you went to a certain university, 
People imagine that you have other attributes as well. Why? Why? These are all assumptions. These are all assumptions. And we're seeing the breakdown of these associations that we naturally make just absolutely fall apart in front of our eyes. The idea that these bastions of, of academia, Harvard, University of Pennsylvania being the, 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 the two most blighted of them right now, right? That somehow these people are also good or moral or upright. And we can't overly generalize, right? But at the same time, we can't rush to assume either. You know, I, I think, and this is just my observation, I think that, first of all, the entire breakdown of the Israel security system, the fact that those, you know, the most sophisticated fences just were just smashed in seconds and all communications between the South and the North basically were, were broken down so that the armies couldn't arrive and, and no information could be, you know, distributed. That was supernatural. God removed his protection. So why? So we can debate it. But, you know, the prevailing opinion is that because the Jewish people were so ununited, so hating each other, you know, history has bared testimony that whenever the Jews are hating on each other, that basically our protection is removed. The greatest example is the destruction of the, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, which is blamed on Sinas Chinam. When people start hating each other, then, then we become vulnerable to every form of attack. So obviously, the fixing is getting back together, right? And, and we're seeing that. We're seeing that in, in amazing, beautiful, beautiful, historic ways. And that's, by the way, something that everybody can do wherever you are in the world, because every Jew counts in this formula. And that means that all of us in our own way are on the front lines in our own lives. So what I think was a second supernatural occurrence, and again, this is just me talking, was not just the removal of the protection that those super high-tech fences seem to be offering, but the speed in which haters of Israel rush to defend Hamas. All over the world, I think that's equally supernatural. Like, it would seem to me that they would be embarrassed, embarrassed, ashamed that this group had so misrepresented their earnest desire for statehood. Right? Can you imagine if you have, like, a legitimate grievance against your landlord. Let's say like, but I'm just whatever aggrieved, right? And people even in the community know, hey, that, that's not right. That shouldn't be going on. And then in the middle of the night, 
the people who feel aggrieved come and murder the landlord and his family and all of his friends and community. <laughs> like, wh what would you be thinking at that point? Like, I was standing up for a gang of barbaric murderers who murdered and tortured and broadcasted their atrocity. I would be deeply embarrassed that I supported these people to begin with. I would be like, that's who I was rallying for? I think that that would be a natural response. And yet you see the opposite. How can that be? I think that's also supernatural because it's so counterintuitive, at least coming from a, a moral perspective, it's so counterintuitive. So in other words, I think that it's, it's also part of God's divine complex plan that we're watching roll out in real time in a way that we can't completely wrap our minds around until, you know, we can digest it and it's all over. I think another aspect of this is that the enemies of Israel, the enemies of morality, the enemies of clear thinking, the enemies of uprightness are publicly identifying themselves. I saw something that I, 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 I thought was especially alarming, especially alarming. And that is, you know, there are all sorts of buzzwords for these, this, this conglomeration of causes that have all aligned themselves with each other. By the way, I gave a talk, I, I put it up, it's 15 minutes called The Ethics of Fighting Evil. If you haven't heard it, try to listen to it. And it's a good one to pass around because it just lays out the morality of Israel's approach right now. And it's just good to hear it put in just a very straightforward manner. Now, I had this, this kind of flash, right? And I want to share it with you. I think that Israel has to do a better job of putting out the word that the war is against Hamas, not the Palestinian people. Because when, you know, one of the things that they're chanting is that Israel is doing, God forbid, genocide. Genocide is a, a, a war to eradicate an entire people. This is not that. This is very far from that. This is a war against a, a government and an army who has pledged in their charter in a way that they've never, never revised and, and the opposite, have doubled down on, have pledged to destroy Israel. Now, just in case you haven't figured it out yet, because it's now become so much a part of just the vernacular that I don't think anyone took a moment to just absorb what the actual words mean. But this chant from the river to the sea, I, let me just explain it to you, just in case you don't know what it means. Imagine the state of Israel on the map right now, on the 
west side is the Jordan River, and on the east side is the Mediterranean Sea. So when they say we have to liberate Israel from the river to the sea, what do you think that means? That means we have to get rid of the entirety of the state of Israel. That's what that means. So, so it's, it's really, it's amazing. And I, I saw someone on social media, I don't know who, but I, I thought, wow, this was a great observation. The, the people who are protesting, like, you don't really hear them say, we want a, we want a, a, a state, you know, like, you know, state rights or whatever the catchy phrase that they would, you know, nationhood or whatever the, the catchy phrase that they can come up with. Two-state solution or our independent country or whatever the words are. What are they chanting? Gas the Jews. Like, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. What direction did that go in? That, that wasn't... That, so you understand how, how whacked out, how absolutely whacked out this is. So, again, Israel has to do a better job of saying that this war is against Hamas, not against the Palestinian people. And by the way, it is against Hamas and not against the Palestinians, right? No matter how it becomes misrepresented. And again, just to make this point one more time, just because you can't hear it enough today, when they come and they murder, you know, 1,400 people and kidnap another 225 or whatever the number is, and how many thousands are injured, and how many hundreds of thousands or millions are absolutely traumatized, right? When we go in to get the attackers, the people who inflicted this, and other people die, that's unfortunate. That's the horrors of war. But they are not intentionally being singled out. And what the media and these protesters want to do is something, and again, here's another buzzword, but just to explain it to you, they want to create something called moral relevancy. What, is, what does that mean? That's another one of these catchphrases. What does moral relevancy mean? That means that there's a one-to-one -one correlation between the citizen who dies in a Gaza bombing accidentally and the kibbutznik who was butchered and disemboweled quite on purpose. That those two things are the same. Those two things are not the same. They're simply not the same. And anyone who says that they're the same is immoral. Or at best, not clear thinking. Now I want to read you one more thing because I, I thought that this was just, again, just really well done. This is, this is from David Collier. This was a tweet. Now listen carefully. The UK suffered about 70,000 civilian deaths in World War II. The Germans, nearly 2 million. 
According to current BBC sensibilities, these numbers mean the UK were the bad guys in World War II, the UK should have ceased firing, the Germans were victims of UK genocide. See the problem? I'm going to say that one more time because it's, it's so strong and he took a very big idea and he, he really, like, laser-like, really laid it out nicely. The UK suffered about 70,000 civilian deaths in World War II. The Germans, nearly 2 million. So do you hear the, the UK had m much fewer, radically fewer civilian deaths. The Germans had many more civilian deaths. According to current BBC sensibilities, these numbers mean the UK were the bad guys in World War II. The UK should have ceased firing. The Germans were victims of UK genocide. See the problem. Okay. So now I want to tell you my my idea, because as someone who works in Hollywood, one of the questions that, that comes up, you know, a lot, you know, is how does Hollywood influence how we think? So that's, that's a question. And right now I'm talking about the actual content of films, not, not celebrities taking political stances, right? By the way, Angelina Jolie, I just saw, came out with a statement that the, the butchering of, and she didn't use that word, the butchering of the Jews that got killed on October 7th does not justify the, the, the Gazan civilian toll, which is exactly what we're talking about here. That is, that is moral relevancy. That is moral relevancy. So... So anyway, that aside, but I'm talking about the content of films. And, and I realized the following. How many things have I seen? And I just saw, by the way, I was researching a project last week, and I was just watching this cartoon, which, which was nothing against this cartoon at all. But I was shocked that the very thing at the end of this like cartoon was exactly another example of what I'm talking about right now. Okay, so, it, so I'm just bringing that up to tell you, and when I tell you this example, you're all gonna go, you're all gonna nod your heads and you're gonna go, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course. For at least a generation, maybe two generations, this message has been put out in Hollywood films. And by the way, the, the reason why they keep on putting out this message is because on a dramatic level, it's great. It's really gripping and entertaining, right? And, and so that's why they keep on doing it because just on a, forget about the morality of it in a second, but the, just the, the artistry of it really works, okay? So let me tell you the idea. There's a really bad guy in the movie. This could be sci-fi, could be a Western, could be a contemporary gangster, right? But like a killer, like a, like a killer, someone who's done something absolutely horrendous. 
and there's a good guy, you know, hunting him during the movie, right? And then finally in the climactic scene, the good guy wins. And he takes out his gun to shoot the bad guy. And then he pauses and he says, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to become like you. And, and then everyone is like, ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? He beat the bad guy and even better, he didn't become like the bad guy because he didn't shoot him. That message has had an effect on the world. Because do you know what the Torah view is? Shoot the bad guy. Finish him off. Finish him off. Right? Now, there might have to be a trial. Right? There might have to be a, a, a judicial process before that happens. But the end of that story is uproot the evil from our midst. That, that is the end of that story. And I think that, you know, high-minded people, like, like that's a very high-minded, it's like a luxury. That, that thought is a luxury. And it's almost like a post-World War II luxury, especially after we've sort of, in it, from America's point of view, engaged in these very morally dubious wars like Vietnam and things like that that no one really felt good about, where we exercised power and didn't really feel good about it, you know? And, and our country, you know, if you just, you know, there's this thing called geopolitics, do you know what geopolitics means? That it means that the foreign policy of a country is largely determined by where your country is on the map. So for instance, if your country is in the middle of the Middle East, surrounded by hostile nations who have pledged your destruction, you will formulate one type of foreign policy. <laughs> If your country is like a very wealthy country that exists on the other side of the globe with a giant ocean called the Atlantic on one side and another giant ocean called the Pacific on the other side and you've got friendly slash docile countries called Canada and Mexico on either side of your borders, you're going to formulate a very different type of foreign policy. That's geopolitics. There, it's not one size fits all for foreign policy. You have to know what you're dealing with and who you're dealing with. So America had the luxury in terms of its isolation, in terms of being in this great comfort zone. And thank God I live in America, so I'm, I am not complaining about the geopolitics right now. But one must appreciate geopolitics, especially now. By the way, just a side note, one of the reasons, I, I just saw this commentary recently, one of the reasons why God picked Israel is, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this thought, but maybe not part two of this thought. 
Egypt doesn't have a problem with water in terms of crops, historically anyway, because the Nile would overflow and the Nile was rich with minerals. And when it would overflow, it would like sort of like fertilize all of the land and then crops would grow. So that, that seemed to be a pretty regular thing and all good. Whereas Israel is a very dry country doesn't have that type of dynamic in terms of rivers overflowing and and watering the crops and everything like that. Israel depends on rain. And rain comes straight from God. (laughs) And so no rain, people starve. So you really have to look up to God just to kind of stay alive. I mean, it's like a a real thing. Okay, so that's, that's one thing about Israel that really sort of directs people's minds to God. But now here's part two, which you may not have heard, which is that Israel is at the intersection of Egypt, Asia, and Africa. All of these places, right, and Europe. So all of these places, like, are right next to Israel and cross through Israel which means that not only is Israel dependent on food from rain from God, but we're the most vulnerable little tiny piece of land in the entire world in history. Where every other giant landmass with a giant population is a hop, skip, and a jump and has to cross through Israel in order to get to where they want to go. That was also by divine plan. Because God gave us that particular spot. It just, you think about the fact that we're this tiny people who have had this enormous, like wildly disproportionate influence on human civilization. And you wonder, like, what was, what's, what's the idea? Why are we so small? And yet everyone thinks that we're just, we're these giant, you know, Think about people in China for a moment. They know about Jews, but they don't know any Jews. They've never met a Jew. Their parents never met a Jew. Their grandparents never met a Jew. But they hear about Jews. Like, for many people in the world, Jews are like these mythical creatures. Right? That's why they wonder, do we have horns and tails and things like that? Because they never met a Jew. And yet the Jews seem to have had this tremendous influence on the world, like vastly beyond their numbers. Like, who are these people? Okay, so let me get back to what I was trying to tell you about the good guy finally gets the bad guy and he doesn't shoot him and that's the ultimate triumph right I'm not going to become like you I'm just going to walk away whereas the Torah says no uproot the evil and finish him off and I think for the last couple of generations The world has drunk in this message. America certainly has drunk in this message. And they look at Israel going into Gaza. 
And they say, wait a second. No, no, no. You're supposed to say (laughs) we're better than that. We're better than that. We're going to walk away. But how about just getting rid of the evil? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? And again, the war is against Hamas. It's not against the Palestinians. Right? People are asking, what, is, what happens after this war? Well, the best case scenario is Hamas is no longer governing the Palestinians. And the Palestinians go, wait a second, this is crazy. We're butchering you. You're coming in and wailing on us. We don't want this anymore. And we say, we don't want this anymore either. So they say, well, what about we live in peace? How about we have a government that isn't committed to killing you and we live in peace and we live in peace side by side. How's that for a solution? Like, and everyone would jump up and down with glee, with glee. So to defend the Palestinians for a moment, there are many Palestinians who are like those Hamas guys They have their hand around our throat. We can't do anything. If we step up and say that we want them to go away, they will shoot us in our sleep and our family in their sleep. And we know that that's what they do. So so the, the, the good among the Palestinians are absolutely crippled by the tyranny of Hamas. Well, what about if Hamas gets rooted out? And then you've got a few brave people who stand up and say, let's, let's try to do this another way. And then people flock to those people. And then all of a sudden, you've got a new government. And then when the remainders of the bad people start to rise up, they deal with those people. That, that can happen. That's what we want to happen. That's what we're looking for. We're not just looking to sort of like, oh, you gave us this horrible, horrible suffering, and now we're going to make you suffer. That's not what's going on right now. At this second, that's how it's playing out. But that is not the goal from our side. That is not the goal at all. The goal is to have two countries living in peace. I heard... Famously said, I don't, I don't know who said this. It sounds like, you know, like a Golda Meir type quote, but I don't know for sure. But if the enemies of Israel laid down their arms today, there would be peace. If the Jewish people laid down their arms, there would be no Israel. So, so we want to rectify that. We want to rectify that. We want to create a situation where there is, you know a party that, that represents the, the peace-loving people who I'm sure are there. Now, let me tell you something, because it's in this week's Parsha, the one that we just read, and it's just phenomenal. I think everyone has been just like jaw-droppingly astounded that every single week's Parsha seems to exactly address what's going on in the world today. So the Parsha that we just read features the first war, and Avraham goes to war in order to do what? To get his nephew, Lot, who's been kidnapped, and is being held hostage. 
It's amazing. It's amazing, right? So, so after Avraham wins this war, it's the four kings against the five kings, okay? And it's the, the, the five kings are the side that, that Avraham is on, even though they're, they're, over, they're outnumbered by the four kings. There are more people on the four kings' side. And Abraham wins the war. And there are miracles that, are, that, that happen in terms of the way God aids Abraham in terms of defeating the four kings. And then after that episode, you see the following word. And Abraham was afraid. Abraham was afraid. And there's an amazing Rashi and, and Rashi is quoting the Medrash Rabbah, which adds more than is in the Rashi. And then I looked in the Medrash Rabbah. Listen to this. Why does it say Abraham was afraid? Because he was afraid in waging this war that there were innocent people who may have died. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? that this is the Jewish sensibility from day one. So if during all of this, you say to yourself, well, how am I supposed to feel about, you know, that Gazan baby that died? Well, how about bad? You can genuinely feel bad because Abraham himself at the end of this war, worried that maybe there was someone innocent that died. And in the Medrash, there are two answers that are given, two very interesting answers that are given. And by the way, that's the end of the thought right there. We can, we can have compassion because we're people of compassion. You can have compassion. And there is no contradiction to having compassion and at the same time, understanding that this war is just and must be fought. That the evil must be uprooted. There is no contradiction. It's just that this is very complicated. So, so contrary, contradictory emotions can rise up in you. But that's the nature of the situation. So what does the Medrash say about those people? Bless you. What does the Medrash say about those people the, the innocence that Avram, feared, that Avram feared may have died. So the Medrash gives two answers. One is, Avraham, don't worry, those people were marked for death anyway. In heaven, before they died, they were already considered dead. Very interesting. That's one answer that the Medrash gives. The other answer that the Medrash gives is, you say they were innocent, but you know, they were hanging out with pretty bad people. So how innocent were they really? That's the other answer that the Medrash gives. And remember the Medrash, I don't know how old this Medrash is, but at least a thousand years old, right? Maybe 2000 years old, who knows? It's pretty old. So two very interesting answers, but the answers are not really the point. 
The, the, the point is that Abraham experiences. That's, that's the point. And if Abraham experienced it, that means that we can experience that level of compassion and concern as well, but not to the extent that it deters us. You know, I heard another comment, which is that World War II would not have been able to be won if there had been social media. And, you know, in terms of numbers of people who die, right, I, I heard this with my own ears. The, the head of Hamas from his luxurious, you know, apartment in Qatar or wherever he is, said, you know, the, he was asked about the, you know, the, the large number of people who are going to die because of his actions. And he didn't blink an eye. And he said, when the Soviets battled the Germans, 30 million Soviets died. This is him talking about his own people, right? And I guess other people as well. He said, when the Vietnamese battled the Americans, 3 million people died. So, you know, here you have the leader of, the, of Hamas is very casual, very casual. They're jumping up and down and, and, and claiming 7,000 people have died, which I saw a headline that said, Biden scoffed at that number, meaning that it, it's not even close to accurate. It's much lower. Yeah, no, no, no. So what do I know? I'm not there counting dead bodies. But, you know, when you have the President of the United States saying something which is very, you know, not politically correct, like, like questioning the number, of, you know, scoffing at the number, the numbers being reported. If, we, if you want any precedence for how dare we scoff at their total, you know, you might take great umbrage in, in questioning that number. The fact that they said, first of all, that we bombed, that Israel bombed that hospital, which has been shown was not the case, and that they said at least 500, and that the number were dead. The number is apparently not even close to that. So, so you see that, that, that we already have, and, and this is, comes from previous conflicts as well, it's in their interest to inflate the numbers. So, but that aside, that aside, let's say it actually is an accurate number. My point is not contingent on it being an inaccurate number. Let's say it's a 100% accurate number. And it's in the, it's 7,000, it's 8,000, it's 9,000, whatever it is. You've got the head of Hamas talking 3 million and 30 million. That these are the price for regaining or gaining state. So if you want to know what's going inside his head, he doesn't give a gosh darn about those numbers. That's chump change for him. If you want to know what his scale is in terms of what his goals are, what he's willing to sacrifice from his nice apartment a thousand miles away. So, so Netanyahu is saying that it's going to be a long war and that it's going to go in stages. 
And I just want to remind you about one thing, okay? It's, it's something that we've discussed, but I, I really think that you kind of need to know this. Have it in the forefront of your minds, okay? Because a lot of us are, I'll speak for myself, I'm checking, you know, the various news sources, like, you know, multiple times an hour, just checking in, seeing if there's any updates, anything new. And for the most part, there is no news to report from, from the Israel side. You know, there, there is just the atrocity and the hostages that are being held. But if you keep on checking, you know, like, one of the, we, a while back, many years ago, our, our modern era was, was, was named the Age of Information. That's what it was called, the Age of Information. It's kind of a, an old term at this point. You don't hear it used so much anymore. But not only was that accurate, but it, it, it kind of is, became accurate to a vengeance where we became so completely saturated with information that what's the most important in information is now completely buried amidst the amounts of information. So people don't have, people have, there's this tension in terms of today's society where people have never had more information and never been more unable to process that information. So we've actually been buried by information instead of informed by information. And this is just one of the weird ironies of, of just the way, you know, contemporary society is. And one of the repercussions of having so much information dumped on you is that it's made our memories very short. Isn't that interesting? It's made our memory very short because, like, have you ever had, like, like, I play this game with my family, which is, at the Shabbos table, we'll say, oh, wait a second, that we were at so-and-so's house last Shabbos. And then we'll say, how long ago did that feel to you? <laughs> and sometimes, rarely, someone will say, oh, it felt like yesterday. That's very rare. More often than not, someone says, that was last week, that feels like three weeks ago. In other words, the more stuff that happens to you, the more the immediate past seems like the distant past. I'll say that again. The more stuff that happens to you, the more the immediate past seems like the distant past. Or, to bring it back to what I'm trying to communicate here, the more information that you absorb, the quicker you forget the past because you're so busy trying to process the present. My point is that October 7th was about three weeks ago, right? It was 22 days ago. And it seems like 
much longer than that. And in terms of news cycles, it seems like so much has happened since then. It seems like that atrocity, the greatest atrocity committed against the Jewish people since the Holocaust, seems like yesterday's news. Not yesterday, like 24 hours ago, but like old news, like somehow not the point anymore. But it is exactly the point. It's not going to stop being the point until this war is over. It's not going to stop being the point because it is the point. I was walking down the street yesterday and I saw like three people. I don't want to describe them too much, but I saw three people who just seemed to me like, if I had to guess, I would say they're probably Hamas supporters. Let's just put it that way. That was just the vibe that I got. And I'm walking home from shul. And they, 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 they weren't, they didn't seem like outwardly aggressive. I didn't feel threatened in the slightest at all by them. You know, they were just kind of going about their thing. But that, I got the sense that if I were to get into a conversation with them, they would be pretty pro-Hamas. And I thought to myself, if they were to engage me in a conversation right now, what would I say to them? Like just on the street, it's not going to be a long talk. We're just going to have a short talk back and forth. And I was kind of depressed because I realized I had no idea what to say to them. And, and, and I came up with this little bit of dialogue back and forth in my head, imagining, you know, a conversation with them. And I don't know if this is the best thing to say or not, right? I said, you know something? When there's a shooting on the street in your neighborhood, you go and you shoot the other guy. So that's what's going on right now. Right? And, and I thought that the, if it becomes a conversation about the history of the conflict, <laughs> and, and then God said to Abraham, this land belongs to, forget it, forget it, forget it. Like, let's just, like, just to discuss it on that level, I felt like, Maybe, maybe, maybe. We just leave it at that. Okay, so, so here's my point, and, and I'll just end with this. It used to be that there was a half an hour, an hour of evening news, local, and a half an hour or hour of evening news, national, international, and that was it. And then CNA, CNN switched to a 24-hour news cycle. And now all of a sudden, you needed to fill 24 hours worth of news. There isn't 24 hours of news to fill. Now, if you want to report on this, on this war going on right now, you're not going to be able to say, and now here the, here's what the Israeli generals are saying of exactly how they're going to attack Hamas. We're going to get an inside view of all the charts. And they're not giving those meetings, obviously, and they're not giving those interviews. 
which means, and then how much can you report on the, the dead people? They already paid all the, they already played the horrific disembowelings over and over again. You can't keep on playing that. It's old news. So all of the news is coming out of bombed out Gaza. That's where all the news is coming out of. That's where all the photos are coming out of. So the more you tie yourself to reading these things, the more your sense of the conflict and the moral boundaries of the conflict are going to become warped. Right? They say the medium is the message. So the medium is going to be so weighted in the other direction that that's going to be the message. And you're going to be influenced and brainwashed by the fact that that's where the news is coming from. So insulate yourself from that and be aware of that, right? And not only that, but I would urge you to try to fill in the gap on our side by creating social media so that we are generating our own news and our own messaging to counteract the lack of news coming out from our side. Because we need to fill that vacuum with more messaging. Now let me just tell you how to do it in a very nice, easy way. I read you that little tweet, right? About how the British would have been the bad guys against the Germans, which we know is not the case. But they said it super beautifully. If you get a tweet that resonates with you, lay it out, make a meme out of it. Put it in a nice font with a nice color, nice and clear, attribute the source, and post it and send it out. That is one easy way to generate social media because we're all getting, we're all getting like videos and tweets and anytime you see the case for Israel, put in a nice clear way, make a nice meme and send it out. All right? These things shouldn't just be wisps of inspiration. These things should be institutionalized, right? Or make five different versions of it if you, if you like it. Put a photo behind it in one of them. Change the colors on it in another. Increase the fonts in another. Enlarge certain words, you know, that help get the point across. You can do that. You can do that. We need to fill in the vacuum of news from our side with social media. And then again, just to return back to the thought that we started with. Again, my friend said, you can't believe the historic amount of unity going on in Israel right now. You can't even believe it. And I, I asked for an example, and I was expecting to hear something supernatural. And he said to me, like with great excitement, someone let me go ahead of them in their car. And I was so inspired by how easy that is to do for all of us, right? If that is actually how great unity comes together through these just little acts of kindness, that's something that we absolutely have to be vigilant about doing right now. Okay. Thanks for listening. 
We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.